listening to the Mr. Sensational Kino Freedom Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. Folks, it is me, it is me, it is Gino V, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with episode 33 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the I See Robots radio network. Y'all must have forgot that I am, in fact, nice with these. Y'all must have forgot. This is what I do. Y'all must have forgot because I was off last week, and I apologize for that, but I'm back this week. I fell into the abyss of home sales, home buying, um, a mundane, mind-numbing saga that I have chronicled on previous episodes of the MSGV podcast. We do not need to go into details. You can dip back a few episodes in the archive ago if you really want to know, but yes, I'm in the process of selling a house, buying a house, and last week I pretty much had out-of-town appointments every day of the week, involved in getting our old house ready to sell and our new house ready to, um, not necessarily ready to purchase, but it's a house that has not been built yet. So certain certain decisions had to be made as far as what form this palatial estate will take in a few months when it actually exists in the corp, is it, is it corporeal, corporal? I don't, you know that term for when something's like real and not a ghost? In that realm, whatever that is. I don't, my, my vocab is not up to snuff. I can't, I can't help you. I make no mistake. But y'all must have forgot. But here I am. I'm back. I'm back again. Guess who's back? Lest you forget. Uh, for another 30 minutes or so of everyday life sensationalized. Talking about not much of anything from the annals of the life sensational. So folks, as mentioned, the Life Sensational has been pretty jam-packed with mundane errands of late, so I haven't really been doing... I've been doing less uh, of interest than I even typically do in the usual uninteresting world of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. Uh, I did manage to watch the entirety of the most recent uh, Marvel television series, WandaVision, over the last couple days. I watched WandaVision on Disney+. I had a free year of Disney Plus when the service first started, and I didn't really use it at all and canceled it just before the free year was up. Excuse me. But uh, the whole the only thing I would ever really watch on Disney Plus is the Marvel content, because that's really the only Disney brand that I follow to any degree. And for that first year, there wasn't really any new Marvel content. But now there is. So it was time to to open the purse strings let the checkbook run wild and uh, sign back up with a paid account. But I already finished what I wanted to watch on there. So I guess I, I, I got off with like a month's, what was it, like five bucks, six bucks? We're going to talk, you know, this is a topic I'm going to broach more next week when I talk about um, the quandary that I'm in with social media right now. But part of that quandary is there's just like so much incessant negative chatter online that I see at least of people just freaking the freak out, freaking the flip out, as it were, about um, streaming services and their attendant costs. And it's like, folks, these things are like pennies on the dollar, and you can cancel them at any time, restart them at any time, where in the meantime, 
cable or satellites like hundreds of dollars a month. So, dude, I love streaming. I love this, this transitioning into this brave new world of cord cutting. I love being able to dip in, dip out for a couple bucks here and there. Um, I mean, from, I, I'm not a money guy. I don't really spend money on anything else. I spend money on, on streamable content, I guess, and like alcohol, <laughs> occasional meals out. That's about it for me. So uh, no complaints here, but we'll talk more about the the just incessant negativity about anything and everything the world has ever created or known online next week. But for now, I will just uh, get back on the topic of WandaVision on the Disney Plus service. I'm not a Marvel mark by any means. I'm not like a huge Marvel fanboy, but I do. I I just watch all the Marvel stuff because it's usually, I find it to be just kind of easy, breezy, mindless entertainment. And just for my own taste, I find their whole approach a little more consistent, a little more uniformly satisfying than what I have watched of the DC Universe offerings. Um, I know some people actually don't like the fact that Marvel has this really homogenous house style, but for mindless entertainment, I just think it works really well. You know what you're getting. It's plug and play. Um, That said, WandaVision was probably their most out-of-the-box... effort to date. I would say that the first season of Jessica Jones, which I feel like a lot of people slept on, was kind of was a little, a little off the beaten path for Marvel as well. But WandaVision definitely had some more kind of cerebral existential things going on in it than your usual, you know, uh, one group of uh, heroes is on one side of the field and one group of villains is on the other and they run at each other and collide and ah, and then you see like a 30 minute CGI fight scene. That's actually my least favorite aspect of Marvel. Um, I, but you know, it's not all that. Uh, but WandaVision certainly was mostly not that. Um, and I don't want to, I, this is not spoiler heavy, but if you really are hell bent on not being spoiled in the slightest of, uh, WandaVision, you might want to want to check out in five, four, three, two, one. Oh my God. The vision is actually, no, sorry. I'm not going to spoil anything. Spoiler free. Well, spoiler light. Uh, everyone's already seen the show anyway. I'm like the last person in the world to watch it, I think. So in, in any case, this show was interesting to me because it dovetails in a sense with a show that we have discussed previously on the podcast. And it's interesting, interesting to me that two comic book adjacent television offerings have veered into this world now within the last few years. And um, what I'm trying to say here is WandaVision, to me, hit on a lot of the same themes that HBO's Watchmen series hit on. I think Watchmen did a little better, a little bit deeper, but also it's not, it wasn't tied to the whole Marvel uh, corporate architecture. I mean, not that it, it was tied to the HBO, whatever, Viacom corporate architecture, but you know what I mean? It wasn't part of a uniformly produced universe of uh, cinematic uh, and television offerings. But for me, both of these shows really have a lot to do with the existential struggle, the eternal struggle, in a sense. I guess it's a finite struggle, at least as far as we know, but it's eternal while we're here in this finite life. But it's that struggle of uh, the maintaining the personal life and the meaning of the personal life and protecting that personal life from a hostile, outside, impersonal world. And that's how kind of how I feel in my life a lot of the time. I come at it from a family, family life perspective, much as 
was depicted in WandaVision, was depicted in Watchmen. But I understand that not everyone uh, has a family. Uh, I mean, at least not, you know, like, I, you know, a, a nuclear family where they're like a, a spouse or partner and children, which is the form that it takes for me, the form that it's often just portrayed in popular culture like WandaVision. But it, I mean, your family can be anything. Your family can be your, your, uh, any kind of community that you participate, any kind of, uh, interaction you have with other people that's real, that's meaningful, that j- isn't just about like doing a job for doing a job's sake or using people, uh, for a specific end in of itself. It, it, it's the being with people simply for the sake of being with people, simply for the meaning of being with those people. And uh, for me, that's kind of the, the, the be all and end all of human life. I don't want to get too uh, on a weird philosophical soapbox, but when we, the, uh, the man or woman or whatever by themselves doesn't really exist as a person. You only exist as a person insofar as you are receiving someone else's personhood and transmitting yours to theirs. And in that relationship, for me, that's where the experience of being a human being lies. But just about every single thing in our daily kind of overall sociological life is stacked completely against that. You're supposed to leave the people that are important to you to go to a job. And the job, that's the the pinnacle of life. That's the values. You have your job. And you have your job so you can make money. And you make that money not necessarily to be able to buy more time to spend with the people that are, are important to you. You make that money to take on more things that require you to generate more money to spend more time away from the people that are important to you. It's very strange, but it's a very, very prevalent social force. And it's a force that runs so deep and so strongly that it even infects those things that should be outside of its sphere. Let me put it to you like this. Every now and again, when I'm reading an article about something or I'm scrolling through this, that, or the third, and there's like some weird advertisements or some weird links, you'll see... A uh, link to some article talking about, you know, um, X is the key to a happy marriage. Like, uh, uh, the man should be X height and the woman should be X height. And if you have that height differential, that's the, that, then that, that marriage is, is just destined to success. Or, um, if children get this specific amount of this certain type of exercise on these days of the week and eat this certain food, every other Thursday, etc. That's the key to uh, the perfect child. These very formulaic things for what should be extremely personal, uh, unique relationships. Because our, if you are choosing a life partner based on any physical attribute, I mean, of course, you, you generally speaking, you if you're spending your life with someone, there's some aspect of them physically that you find attractive in addition to everything else. But but if, if it's just this warehouse where you're looking for the the woman that's 5'4", the man that's 6'2", or what have you, or and the child that's taken X, Y, or Z classes, or that, that has been given this, this uh, sort of diet, and it doesn't matter who they are as long as you get this one that has those, those qualities, that's just, that's very strange and impersonal and inhuman. So in WandaVision, we see a couple in Wanda and the Vision that are the antithesis of that. These two two specific individuals who found each other in life and formed this uh, profound relationship. Um, The Vision could not just find some other stand-in off the street for Wanda. Wanda could not find some other stand-in off the street for Vision. It's these two unique souls joined together 
in a relationship. And again, not going into uh, deep spoilers or anything, but they find themselves existing in this kind of cartoonish parody sitcom world where everything else around them is fake, is phony, but their relationship is real. Uh, And I feel like for those of us who are both lucky enough and cursed enough to have some kind of relationship in our life that's real, whether that's, again, a family relationship like in WandaVision or if it's a relationship with another kind of community or relationship, uh, you know, with anyone else, anything that transcends the day-to-day transactional relationship where I'm interacting with you simply to get something, you're interacting with me simply to get something, there's no intrinsic value in us just being together. Uh, To anyone who's experienced that, WandaVision feels very familiar um, because you often feel like you are living in two worlds at the same time. You're living in the world of your real family, your real relationship, your real community, but you're also living in this outside world of phoniness and fakeness um, and trying to survive in that. But what was also uh, cleverly depicted in WandaVision is that the other individuals inhabiting the sitcom world themselves had real lives that they were having to hide as they went out and performed their social scripts as sitcom characters. Very interesting, very interesting show. Kind of hit me in a strong way because... um, the whole uh, me, uh, the whole gimmick in the show of uh, Vision kind of suddenly coming to in this strange new surroundings and not really remembering how he got there or what had been going on. And I kind of have experienced that in my own life recently, moving just very suddenly from a place where I'd been for uh, living for 10 years, where my children had been going to school, my oldest had been going to the same school from kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, we lived in the same house for 10 years, just abruptly leaving all that and entering a new community almost felt like I just woke up one day and didn't remember where I came from, but I remembered my family and that was all real, but everything else seemed kind of fake and, uh, uh, illusory. So the show caught me, um, on that, uh, note because I've been processing a lot of those feelings myself and part of processing a big family change where everything else around you is gone, but the family is still there. Um, Part of what happens is it causes you to realize how fragile the thing that you care about most really is. Because families, no matter what, are not forever. Individual members are going to leave us at some point, as uh, evidenced in WandaVision. And that's kind of a scary thought. You know, when when uh, so much of your life, so much of your meaning is wrapped up in these other human beings that you care about so much, but you know that uh, nothing with them is going to stay the same forever. That can get kind of heavy. But um, again, like uh, uh, there's that line that everyone's requoting from the show. What is it like? What is uh, grief but not love enduring? And uh, Watchmen on HBO talked about this too with uh, the line that all relationships end in tragedy. So that grief and that tragedy, I guess, is part of the experience. And anyone who is in any kind of meaningful relationship is going to experience it. So I guess it can't be that bad. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is part of this life experience that we all experience one way or another. And all will end up in the same place, I guess, 
once it's over. I don't know. We we shall see or we shall not see. Uh, food for thought in any case. And now, before moving into the next topic on today's show, a joke. So back in 1987, when uh, Star Trek The Next Generation first began to air on television, I was around 11 years old, give or take, and a friend of mine and I were watching this show for the first time. And when the credits rolled, we noticed that the character of Commander William Riker was depicted by an individual whose last name we weren't sure how to pronounce. His first name was clear enough, Jonathan, but the individual's last name was spelled F-R-A-K-E-S. Well, it's Frakes, my friend said. No, 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 my good sir, you're mistaken, I told him. It's Frakes. Now, in 1987, there was no internet where we could easily look up a clip of someone pronouncing the name correctly. So it remained a mystery. Until sometime later, I found an article describing what an efficient actor this individual was on the set of TNG while portraying Commander William Riker. So efficient, in fact, that his nickname was, get this, To Takus Fracus. So we're going to finish off today talking about comic books. We started this topic last week. I was telling you about how um, after encountering a few comics here and there in my super younger years um, by way of places like Greyhound, Station, Magazine, Racks, um, I really got into comics full bore by way of the Bennett Valley 7-Eleven in Santa Rosa, California. My grandpa took me there, bought me an issue of Gru, issue 16. I double-checked it was 16 with the fly on the nose. E-nerd, it was not issue one of the Marvel epic run. It was, in fact, issue 16. Um, an issue of Captain America, which I didn't bother looking up, but he was uh, locked in struggle with a guy wearing a blue outfit and roller skates. But getting those first two issues from a 7-Eleven engendered the very soothing, ritualistic uh, tradition of walking down to 7-Eleven and buying comic books from the little newsstand under the counter there. And I bought, uh, I remember reading Dead Man, Cloak and Dagger, uh, G.I. Joe, uh, which we've talked about at length on previous episodes. What else was percolating back then? ElfQuest, the aforementioned Gru, I got into Captain America, uh, Avengers, um, just kind of did the rounds with what came down the pike at the 7-Eleven. And to be perfectly honest, if it had never changed from that, I would... I've been totally happy. I could still, to this day, be visiting 7-Eleven and buying a couple 75-cent comics uh, once a week. But things don't stay the same. Things change. And somehow, pardon me, as this ritual continued, I caught wind of the fact that there was something out there known as comic book stores. Actual stores devoted to comic books. Not a little news rack under the counter like at the 7-Eleven, but an entire store. And I caught wind that there was a store in downtown Santa Rosa. And so I talked my dad into taking me down there. And at the time, this was a store on 4th Street in Santa Rosa, somewhere near where Santa Rosa's um, much-renowned last record store existed at that time in its old 4th Street location, long since moved from there. 
but this is kind of a main, one of the main streets downtown. Um, there was a store and the store was known as Best of Two Worlds. And now for some reason, I was probably about 10 at the time. I was 10 at the time. Uh, I took this to mean somehow that they were insinuating that there was like another alternate world, um, an alternate earth, another planet out there in the orbit. And that this shop was the best in either of those two worlds. Actually, what I think it meant is they, it was the best of comics and the best of role-playing games because they had those two. <laughs> but the first time I went to Best of Two Worlds, it was such an uncanny, magical experience because there'd recently been, there'd been a big flood. There'd been a, been a storm and a lot of flooding. This was in 1986 in Santa Rosa, and their store had flooded. And so going in there, I sort of got, I think there was still like some standing water in certain parts of the floor, and there was like damaged merchandise everywhere. So it just seemed like this very like a uh, never-ending story kind of ramshackle magical uh, paperback bookshop where the tomes were all damaged, but that was just uh, a facade and really there was all this this supernatural magical stuff going on under the surface. But in any case, that was the first time I visited Best of Two Worlds. I don't even remember what I purchased there. I just remember it came in a bag and with an angry Wolverine <clears throat> depicted on the bag and it said Best of Two Worlds. Um, but that was my first inkling that, oh, you're not just supposed to roll these comic books up into a ball and shove them in your back pocket like I do. You put them in bags and boards. Uh, Best of Two Worlds eventually moved to a place called the Brickyard Center, which was next to a very underwhelming Chuck E. Cheese's. The Santa Rosa Chuck E. Cheese's, the one that I really uh, cut my teeth on, I really grew up on, was in Santa Maria, California. And it was this big warehouse Chuck E. Cheese. It was this huge uh, building just full of arcade games and the animatronic band just seemed like this, this larger than life place. The Santa Rosa Chuck E. Cheese's was just this little hole in the wall that, um, you know, probably had about the same amount of stuff shoved into it, but it was just in such smaller square footage. I always thought like, this isn't Chuck E. Cheese. In any case, Best of Two Worlds was next door. I started going to Best of Two Worlds and I quickly became subsumed into the world of 80s comics. You go walk in there and uh, Dark Knight Returns is up on the wall Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff, the kind of early Eastman Laird stuff is everywhere. Um, Frank Miller Electra stuff. Um, uh, Love and Rockets posters. Uh, so I kind of did a zero to 1,000 going from just newsstand superhero comics to just really... I still I still held strong with those, but just I, I would I would read anything and everything I can get my hands on and I quickly got indoctrinated into the kind of deeper at the time more underground edgier uh comics <clears throat> as the 80s were giving way to the 90s and all of the ug grunt snickness that was to come with a uh, just kind of darker bloodier grimmer comics um a darker wolverine a darker dark knight uh comics that weren't even about superheroes comics that were a parody a dark parody of superheroes like watchmen um really submerged myself into that world and regularly started regularly started buying comics at best of two worlds which eventually became barrett's comics and games which eventually moved over to mendocino avenue became fantasy books and games and now is no longer with us in any way shape or form but this was my hub for comics <clears throat> for the most part here's the problem i'm not a good collector i'm a really lousy collector i absolutely loved reading comic books. I'll never be able to recreate it, but that feeling of being a young person with no significant responsibilities in the world and a big stack of comic books, 
that you could spend an entire afternoon kind of slumped on your mattress, leafing through, just losing yourself in those stories, losing yourself in those arcs. I adored that. I loved that. It's still one of my, my favorite, uh, favorite memories in life. As I lay on my deathbed at some point, I'm sure as my life flashes before my eyes, I'll picture myself laying there with a big stack of dog-eared comics. But there's the thing, dog-eared comics. Because I loved reading comics. I, I read them so much that I sapped the life out of them because I actually read them. I, I, I held them. I flipped through pages. I uh, uh, dog-eared them to remember where I was. Um, there is an OCD part of me that is that is suited to collecting because I liked making uh, databases of the comic books I'd read, databases of the comic books I wanted to read, uh, lists of what I had, lists of what they were supposedly worth. We'll get into that in a minute. But what I did not love, what I did not love was taking those comic books when I was done reading them, putting them into a Mylar bag with a cardboard backing and storing them somewhere. Those things were just strewn all over the room. So I could just grab them, pick them up, read again anytime I wanted. Because I loved reading them. But for whatever reason, and I don't even really remember why, uh, the notion of collecting was just in the air. It had been codified at this point. It was that, that to, to engage with comics is to collect them. Reading was secondary. Collecting was primary. And this started to go off like wildfire among my friends and peers at the time to the point where when we were young and new to comics, it was sitting around in a room reading them, tossing, tossing, them, tossing the one I just finished reading to my friend. He finishes reading his, tosses one back to me, you know, just stacks of uncared for comics being actively read. That took a backseat to... Uh, kind of sitting around like accountants, joylessly leafing through the Overstreet uh, price guide to see how much our collections were worth. Now, we all know at this point they were worth jack smack because they're worth as much as a store or someone is willing to pay you. They're not really worth what's in the Overstreet guide. But for whatever reason, as kids, we went down this bizarre path where the worth, worth of the comics was in their supposed resale value. It wasn't in the emotions they stirred in us, the stories being told, our connection to the characters, our connection to the art, et cetera, et cetera. And you can obviously have both. I'm certainly not against collecting. I'm just saying it's interesting looking back how um, I feel like a lot of the joy was lost when collection took the forefront. I feel like th this happens a lot of times for me, and I guess it's just the way I'm wired. I, to me, the narrative is the thing when it comes to any kind of content. The, the, my emotional connection to a story being told is always what is more important than anything else. And that's not always the same um, for other people, I guess, because I'm usually, I, that leaves me on the outside looking in a lot of times. So you talk about, I used to be a very big fan of professional wrestling. And spoiler alert, I've been watching it again a little bit here and there. I've been getting a little bit back into it. You know, Noah ran a show at Budokan. I know that's not going to mean a lot to a lot of people, but I've been watching some wrestling again. Um, me and wrestling are a little back on speaking terms. But with wrestling, what absolutely appeals to me most about wrestling is whether or not I have an emotional connection to the wrestlers and the story that's going on in the ring. Whether or not I care about who wins, whether or not I care about who loses, whether or not I care about the consequences 
of why we are here watching this athletic event. The same goes for like any non-worked sporting event, whether it's like UFC, people can be landing the greatest punches and kicks in the world. It doesn't matter to, I mean, of course you would rather see a great story with great punches and kicks, just like with wrestling, you'd like to see a great story with great uh, wrestling moves being done in the ring. But when you take away the story and you just have good moves or you just have good athleticism in a sporting event, to me, that's incredibly uninteresting. But for many people, that becomes the pinnacle. So one of the things that kind of led me away from wrestling is generally what's considered in wrestling fandom to be uh, exciting about wrestling is whether or not something was a quote unquote good match. And by good match, that means whether wrestling moves were executed properly. Doesn't matter if there there was a story to bring us to these properly executed moves. It's were these moves executed properly. Much like with comics, it wasn't these comic books are worth money because they're such great stories and we love them so much and we cherish them. And we want to keep them forever. It was more like, what's this one worth? What's that one worth? What's okay? Get break out the abacus. Great. Anyway, uh, long story short, though, this descent into joylessness actually inadvertently led me because Mr. Sensational Gino Vega is not the uh, swiftest individual in a lot of uh, instances, led me to one of my favorite comic book memories of all time. And I'll tell you what it was. Um, I had gone full bore collector mode or wannabe collector mode because like I said, I'm not a good collector. Uh, so my parents took me one day to a store that... Uh, ISR, I See Robots, has referenced many times on episodes of his various shows. But a store in Santa Rosa called Paperbacks Unlimited. Uh, we went by there because someone had clued them into it when we were still relatively new to Santa Rosa. And we went down there because we found out we could just get a ton of paperback books appealing to all various interests in the family for a very affordable uh, sum of money. So we went there one day and went on a Paperbacks Unlimited shopping spree. And as I was combing Paperbacks Unlimited and as I was collecting a stack of paperback Star Trek novels, I came across a spinner rack in the back corner of the shop that had 25 cent comic books. Every comic book on the spinner rack was one quarter, one quarter. At this point in time at a store, a new issue. I think at this point they were probably like, they were 75 cents when I started. They were up to like a dollar or a dollar something at this point. 25 cents. Now these were used. These were used, but, but here's what I didn't get. I was like, well, man, when I'm at uh, Best of Two Worlds or, or Barrett's Comics and Games or Fantasy Books and Games, whatever it may have called itself at whatever given moment, man, when you're buying used comics there, they're at least the cover price, if not like 30, 50, 80, 120% more. These used comics are 25 cents. And look, look at this. I'm looking at this rack and there's these, these Marvel comics that I've never heard of before. This series called The Human Fly and, and they've got issue number one. And if there was anything that any child of the 80s, any comic book collecting child of the 80s knew, it was that issue number ones equal money. Not only did they have issue number one, they had issue number two. Not only did they have issue number two, they had issue number three, and number four, and number five, and number six, and they had the entire run of Marvel's The Human Fly, which I proceeded to purchase for pennies on the dollar. Pennies on the dollar. So with a feeling of incredible smugness, I took my winnings, my treasure plucked from the heart of Paperbacks Unlimited. I took it home. I proceeded to read that entire run. 
and just loved every minute of it. The human fly, if I, if I can even remember correctly, he was, was kind of an evil Knievel type. He was a stuntman. And I think he had gotten grievously injured, uh, which caused him to get some sort of metal skeleton, skeletal implants. And he used that to become, I, I think he continued being a, uh, a stuntman, but then he was also, he would bust up crimes that he happened to see in, in, the, in the process of doing his stunts and entertaining the masses. And I just got drawn into this whole thing and just enjoyed reading the whole run from start to finish. I kind of liked the fact that I'd never heard of it before and no one I knew knew about it. So it was kind of my own thing. I was, I was a human fly guy. You know, I, I was all in on human fly. And then when I was done, I was going to have this, this series that was worth so much money until I found out the reason it was sitting on the spinner rack and paperbacks unlimited for 25 cents uh, an issue is because Marvel's The Human Fly was essentially worthless. It was not worth the print paper it was printed on except for one young boy named Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, for whom it was absolutely priceless. So yeah, eventually comics just kind of passed me by. They fell out of my grasp. I didn't have the disposable income as I got older to keep up with them on an issue-by-issue basis. Uh, I would sometimes buy the occasional trade paperback or collected edition here or there, and while they were always at the edge of my consciousness, they were always an in integral part of my imaginal landscape. They were not; they were no longer a part of my daily life like they were when I was younger. Um, and I guess it was just there was no real way around that because there there was no way. Uh, what was so enchanting to me about comic books? It was so intertwined with youth, with childhood, with, uh, you know, the Twinkies ads, the, the Incredible Hulk rolling up a street gang into the, into, uh, uh, the cement and then eating some Twinkies or some Hostess fruit pies. That to me was the, the heart and soul of comics. And, and yes, I appreciated all the kind of finer art comics that were out there, all the, all the higher end stuff that I got into. I did, and, you know, there is, I totally understand why people collect too and why that's fun. But for me, I was in it for this. I, I was in it on a 7-Eleven level. I was a 7-Eleven comics guy. I was a spinner rack comics guy. And that world just kind of turned to dust and crumbled and faded away. Never to be seen again. Uh, slipping through the fingers like so much else does. But I still have the memories. And in this day and age, I've kind of had a, a, a renaissance for myself personally with comic books because of the advent of digital comics because of the advent of things like comiXology and like Marvel's uh, digital comics platform, DC's digital comics platform. And I know that's going to make some people out there cringe. And I know there, there, there's uh, reasons why it's not the greatest thing in the world. It's certainly not supporting brick and mortar comic book shops. And I, I'm sure there's arguments why it's not good for creators, but I'm not, I'm not in it deep enough to, to, to it's, it's not a fight that I can, I can help win. If I'm going to read comic books at all, uh, the only way I'm really going to be able to access them is through the convenience of digital delivery. And because of that convenience, because it doesn't doesn't require just huge sums of money that I don't have to spend on that particular hobby, because it doesn't require a, a, a keen collector's discipline and, uh, um, you know, the fine motor skills of putting stuff back into a bag when you're done looking at it, you know, with gloves and not getting fingerprints on it and not 
smudging or crinkling the pages because that is not within my wheelhouse. I'm consigned to this comic book half-life of, of uh, it's almost like watching TV through someone else's window because I do understand. It's like, you know, when you strip the material, when you strip the page and the ink and all that stuff, you do lose quite a bit but the heart is still there. The story is still there. So I have been using, as I've talked about on other episodes of the show, digital means to kind of dip a toe back into comics. And really, I don't read books, so comics are all I read. I don't really read that much. I'm more of a uh, television consumer, video game consumer. But when I read, I don't always read, but when I do, it's digital comics. Um, So they've been back in my life, and that's been a good thing. In a perfect world, if I if I won the lotto tomorrow, sure, I'd start collecting print comic books again. But it is not something that is high enough on my personal in my personal pantheon to spend the money that it takes. To those of you who do, Godspeed, you're doing the Lord's work. I love hearing about other people. I love it like when uh when I see robots does that garage comic book store segment on his show. It's one of my favorite segments that he does. I love hearing other people talk about their collections. It's just not within my powers to maintain a proper comic book collection. But I will always love comic books. I will always love those childhood memories. And I am enjoying creating new memories by reading things digital as um, half-life as that may be. Folks, it's been real. It's been another episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. I'm glad to be back. I will be back next week. We will be talking about stuff. I'll figure out what it is between now and then. Uh, But for now, it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, with episode 33 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Signing off.